The One God, the Father, One Man, Messiah translation, introduction. The deity of Jesus is inherently un-Jewish. The witness of Jewish texts is unvarying. Belief that a second being is God involves departure from the Jewish community. So said Maurice Casey in his book From Jewish Prophet to Gentile God, written in 1992. Another quotation. According to the New Testament witnesses, in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, relative to the monotheism of the Old Testament and Judaism, there had been no element of change whatsoever. Mark 12, verse 29, recorded the confirmation by Jesus himself without any reservation of the supreme monotheistic confession of faith of Israelite religion in its complete form. That's a quotation from Dr. Martin Werner in his book Formation of Christian Dogma, written in 1957. Born and bred as a member of the Church of England, Anglican, I attended church with family and at boarding school dutifully every Sunday. The hymns were beautiful, the buildings many centuries old, the list of clergy dating back for half a millennium. The ten-minute homily on Sunday came very far short of giving us a biblical education. At 20 years old, I went up to Oxford to gain a suitable qualification in modern languages, German and French. It was at that time that I was invited to attend an evangelical, quote, get saved meeting. This event brought me to my first serious investigation of Scripture, where I found in Jesus' gospel of the kingdom the irrepressible hope and promise that Jesus, in addition to having died for the sins of the world, will, at his spectacular return, bring about the worldwide peace which has so obviously not been produced by current political effort. Some 60 years after my first engagement with the Bible, after a degree in theology and a career as teacher of the Bible and its languages in a small Bible college, I've gained the strong impression, as have many others, that the Jesus of history and his impassioned proclaiming of the gospel about the kingdom were unknown to us in those Church of England days. The biblical plot and story had been drastically distorted. Perhaps not surprisingly, church-going is now reduced to a tiny handful of my fellow Englishmen. It appears that what we got of, quote, Bible was heavily filtered through a mass of alien tradition. We were allowed only a severely censored version of Scripture. Concluding that Jesus was a Jew and a claimant to Messiahship, and believing that his claims were and will be entirely vindicated, I've attempted to read the New Testament in its very Jewish messianic context. 
I soon noted, by reading widely, that scholars of all stripes fully admit that the Jesus of actual history and of so-called church are often poles apart. In some cases, those experts are less than accessible or straightforward enough to register a clear complaint, much less an urgent call for reform and restoration. As watchdogs, as they should be, their bark has been tragically feeble. The consequences of, quote, bucking the system may be costly. Dr. J. A. T. Robinson of Cambridge was fearlessly correct when he stated that, quote, heaven is never, in fact, used in the Bible for the destination of the dying. That's from his book, In the End God, written in 1968. This powerful observation should point to the dire need for a careful examination of what we learned uncritically in church. The future of our blighted earth and the promise of a state of international peace when nations will, quote, never again learn war, as we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, when the Sandhursts and the West Points of today's system will become curio museums at the time when the Messiah makes his spectacular return to this earth as the royal Davidic king who alone can produce peace. This is rather obviously the compelling goal of the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation. It is also the core of the Christian gospel of the kingdom, which was preached in advance to Abraham. As we read in Galatians 3 verse 8, Abraham, who has never yet inherited the land promised to him personally, as well as to his seed, or descendants, according to Acts 7, verse 5, and Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 39. But he will inherit that land along with all the faithful. The land promise, or kingdom of God promise, is the theme which drove Jesus and all the biblical writers. The vision of nations at peace I found rivetingly interesting as soon as I was exposed to Scripture. The claims of the monotheistic Jew, Jesus, to be the Son of Man and Son of God and the long-promised Lord Messiah, according to Luke 2.11, the one who will eventually bring order to our chaotic world, I have found irresistible for the past 60 years. I fear only that the appalling complications which Greek philosophically influenced Gentile church leaders imposed from the second century onwards on the essentially simple teachings of the Bible have rendered intelligent reading of Scripture in its own original context almost impossible. This translation, then, has as its premise the conviction that the Church today, in its preaching, teaching, and tradition, 
generally gives you a strongly Greek philosophically influenced version of the New Testament. This unfortunate departure from the original faith of Jesus and the apostles dates from the second century AD, that is, after the canon of the New Testament closed with the book of Revelation. A full reformation and return to the beliefs of the New Testament church did not occur in the 16th century Reformation under Luther and Calvin. The tragic lapse from apostolic truth leads you away from the original New Testament community's essentially simple account of the faith. And I quote, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, as we read in Jude, verse 3. Voices of protest and alarm among many may be cited in support of our thesis. Eberhard Griesebach wrote, I quote, In its encounter with Greek philosophy, Christianity became, quote, theology. That was the fall of Christianity. That was from a lecture by Griesebach on Christianity and Humanism in 1938. Anglican Canon Gouge said, I quote, when the Greek and Roman mind instead of the Hebrew mind came to dominate the church, there occurred a disaster in doctrine and practice from which we have never recovered. That's from an essay called The Calling of the Jews in the collected essays entitled Judaism and Christianity, written in 1939. Anglican Dean Farrar was frank enough to concede that the Church has constantly made a mess of its attempt to interpret the Bible. He notes that, and I quote, Holy Scripture contains everything necessary for salvation. So says the sixth article of the Church of England. And that, quote, the plain teachings of Christ are the soul infallible guide. He then laments the evident failure of expositors to agree on what the Bible says. I quote, truly, if over the whole extent of what we call religion, men have an infallible guide, they have, and that to all appearance inevitably rendered it worse than useless by fallible expositions. That's a quotation from Dean Farrar in his book, The Bible, Its Meaning and Supremacy, written in 1897. Then this marvelous insight from E. F. Scott, Doctor of Divinity. I quote, Christianity, in the course of the Gentile mission, had changed into another religion. The church had forgotten or refused to know what Jesus had actually taught. That's from Scott's book, The Kingdom of God in the New Testament, written in 1931. William Winwood Reed 
British historian and philosopher, reinforces our point. I quote, The Church diverged in discipline and dogma more and more widely from its ancient form, till in the second century the Christians of Judea, who had faithfully followed the customs and tenets of the Twelve Apostles, were informed that they were heretics. During that interval, a new religion had risen. Christianity had conquered paganism, and paganism had corrupted Christianity. The legends which belonged to Osiris and Apollo had been applied to the life of Jesus. The single deity of the Jews had been exchanged for the Trinity, which the Egyptians had invented and which Plato had idealized into a philosophic system. The man who had said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but one, that is God, had now himself been made a god, or rather the third part of one. That quotation is from William Winwood Reed, writing in 1892 in his book, The Martyrdom of Man. If the Bible is taken at face value, within its brilliant Jewish apocalyptic setting, I quote, sooner or later the time will come when the simple and natural will be recognized as the true. That's a quotation from Albert Schweitzer in his book Geschichte der Leben Jesu Forschung, cited by Martin Werner. Dr. Martin Werner's summary of the early chaos which overcame the messianic Jesus and his teaching deserves the widest possible hearing. I quote, The cause of the Trinitarian Christological problem which so perplexed post-apostolic Christianity lay in the transition from the apocalyptic Messiah Son of Man concept of the primitive Christian eschatological faith with its sense of imminence to the new dogma of the divinity of Jesus. There was certainly no need nor justification to substitute for the original concept of the Messiah simply a Hellenistic analogy such as that of a redeeming divine being. Indeed, it was wholly invalid. It was a myth behind which the historical Jesus completely disappeared. That's from Martin Werner's book, The Formation of Christian Dogma. Christian Becker, in his book, Paul's Apocalyptic Gospel, points out that the shift from Jesus and Paul's Apocalyptic Gospel of the Kingdom, quote, constitutes something like a fall of Christendom. He calls this rightly, quote, a fall from the apocalyptic world of early Christianity to platonic categories of thought. 
This had, and I quote again, a tremendous impact on the history of Christian thought, bringing about, again a quotation, an alienation of Christianity from its original Jewish matrix. That's a quotation from Christian Baker in his book Paul's Apocalyptic Gospel, The Coming Triumph of God, written in 1982. Translations, particularly some modern ones like the NIV, the New International Version, so to speak, help the reader to see things in the New Testament which reinforce his or her impression that later so-called orthodoxy is solidly biblical. But this involves, quote, pushing the Greek text beyond what it actually says. This unfair process is an attempt to justify the later departure from the original faith. It smooths over the embarrassing difference between the original Greek scripture of the original community of faith and what from the second century developed as a tragic departure from the biblical orthodoxy of Jesus and Paul. The most striking example of this embarrassing difference between Jesus and the beliefs of those claiming to follow him is the Unitarian Creed affirmed with maximum emphasis by Jesus in discussion with a colleague Jew. You'll find that in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. On this critical passage of Scripture, the Church has adopted an alarming posture of silence. And I note that often it is what we do not say which gives away a flaw in our thinking. In that marvelously instructive passage of Scripture, a Jewish scholar had asked Jesus about what is the most critically important command of all. Jesus replied by endorsing the monumentally significant creed of Israel's heritage, the core of all true religion. I quote, The Lord our God is one Lord, as read from the New Testament Greek, citing the Septuagint Greek version of the Old Testament. This is a unitary monotheistic and certainly not a Trinitarian creed. The word one is a quantifier, a simple mathematical numeral, and God is defined here as innumerable times in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament as one single divine Lord, one divine person, one divine self, one Yahweh. He is so described by thousands of singular personal pronouns, which, as we all know, designate a single person. Malachi 2 verse 10 encapsulates with delightful simplicity the totality of the Bible's view of God as one divine person. I quote, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God 
created us? The importance of this point needs to be repeated. The clash between the original teachings of Jesus and what later emerged as Christianity is most starkly demonstrated by the failure of Bible readers to take with utmost seriousness Jesus' own Unitarian, that's to say Unitary monotheistic definition of God in Mark 12, verse 29. In that classic passage, Jesus is seen to be in total harmony with a friendly Jewish Bible scholar. And in John 17, verse 3, Jesus proposed as the key to the life of the age to come, inadequately rendered in many versions as eternal life, Jesus proposed that we come to recognize and know the Father as, quote, the only one who is true God. Compare with that John chapter 5, verse 44. In John's writings, the Father is equated with God nearly 150 times. And in the New Testament, it is obvious that the word God, often in the Greek, the God, as seen in the original Greek manuscripts, means the Father and not Jesus. The word God means the Father about 1,300 times in our New Testament. The Creed of Israel was never Trinitarian. Thus the fact that Jesus affirms and endorses the Unitarian Creed of Judaism ought to provide a provocative and life-changing embarrassment to today's church, which has ceased to quote and believe the creed of Jesus. It has departed from Jesus at the most crucial level of all theological and spiritual endeavor. Thus, Christianity is distinguished by the remarkable characteristic that it is the only world religion which begins by discarding its own founder's creed. Mark 12, verse 29, and Jesus as our rabbi teacher, not just one who provided forgiveness by dying for us, must be reinstated if Bible study and preaching are to be honest with the Christian documents. There are places in some modern translations which plainly depart from the Greek original in order to give the impression that the later so-called orthodoxy is biblically based. A classic example is in Philippians 2 verse 5 where the Son of God is described in the NIV New International Version as quote being in very nature God but this is a horrible imposition on the text which says not a word about Jesus being God. The word, quote, nature here is meant to encourage the notion of a, quote, God the Son, who is of the same so-called essence as the Father. But the word essence and hypostasis belong to a theological vocabulary of post-biblical times, 
when the simplicity of the pristine belief in God, the Father, as, quote, the only one who is true God, John 17, 3, had been lost. We note, too, that in a very subtle way, the NIV does not want you to see that the gospel of the kingdom was preached equally by Jesus and Paul. Introducing the ministry of Jesus, the NIV reports him as preaching the good news, while Paul is said to be preaching, quote, the gospel. But that distinction is absent from the original Greek and encourages a discontinuity between Jesus and Paul. Both Jesus and Paul, who followed Jesus faithfully, preached the same one saving gospel of the kingdom. It is misleading to translate evangelion, the word for gospel, for Jesus' preaching as good news, and the very same word for Paul's preaching as gospel. It points to a dangerous systematic error that Jesus' teaching has been discarded, superseded, in favor of a misunderstood gospel of Paul. We have failed to call Jesus Rabbi and Lord, as we find Jesus saying we should in John 13, verse 13, and Jesus everywhere urged us never to fall short of grasping and obeying his saving words. John 3, verse 36, John 12, verse 44 and following, and compare with that Hebrews 5, verse 9. My hope is to bring into clear focus the very uncomplicated New Testament definition of God as the Father of Jesus, and certainly not as triune. We want to emphasize constantly the definition of the saving gospel as the gospel about the kingdom of God, of which Jesus was the original and authoritative preacher. As we read in Hebrews 2, verse 3, Luke 4, verse 43, and Acts 10, verse 36. I have, of course, gained immensely from all of some 60 modern translations in various languages available on the standard software used by scholars. These translations mostly convey the sense of the Greek in varied but entirely acceptable ways. However, in certain key passages, they misrepresent the Greek text in an effort to portray Jesus as God the Son, second member of an eternal trinity. This major objective, namely to define the saving gospel as Jesus defined it, means restoring the voice and mind of Jesus to our Bible reading. At present, the public never gets a clear concept of what Jesus preached as the saving gospel. Our observation is that, quote, the gospel about the kingdom with which Jesus laid the foundation of all sound belief, according to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, 
that gospel is virtually absent from contemporary tracts, books, and websites and blogs offering so-called salvation. The voice of Jesus at the most fundamental level of defining the gospel has been silenced and censored. In place of the gospel as Jesus preached it to the public, we here offered a very, quote, washed out version of the gospel, geared largely to psychological self-improvement, or as Dallas Willard calls it, Gospels of Sin Management. That's a quotation from Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, written in 1998. Popular evangelicalism has been emptied of its vivid apocalyptic flavor, announcing the future of human society and warning of the future return of Jesus in judgment and to rule on a renewed earth. The gospel announces God's future revolutionary government, which will put an end forever to all war. Without grasping the proper starting point, following Jesus himself, Bible readers are left with a hazy conception as to the definition and content of the saving gospel. Paul is then often twisted by a selection of a few verses taken without regard to context. Romans 10 verses 9 to 10 is typical. And Jesus' version of the gospel is bypassed in the process. Paul did not contradict Jesus' insistence on the necessity of believing the gospel about the kingdom, as we find in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Paul concludes Romans 10 by saying that faith comes by hearing and believing the word or gospel of Messiah, verse 17. That is the gospel which the Messiah himself preached. Paul is misunderstood, if you're following the NIV there, and not the more accurate New American Standard Bible. Paul is here misunderstood, if you're following the NIV, and not the more accurate New American Standard Bible, when Paul is made to say that one needs only to hear of Jesus, as to say about him, when in fact one must hear Jesus. That is, one must hear and respond intelligently to Jesus' own words, his own gospel of the kingdom message. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 3, Paul should not be pitted against Jesus. Paul did not say there that the all-important death and resurrection of Jesus comprise the whole gospel. Those facts were indeed items amongst things of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 After all, Jesus had preached the gospel of the kingdom 
for years without at that stage so much as a mention of his death and resurrection, which he introduced first in Matthew 16, verse 21. My conviction about the absence of the center of the saving gospel from popular preaching as the kingdom is trenchantly stated by a professor of missiology. This is when Dr. Mortimer Arias observed, and I quote, we seem to be faced with what can be called an eclipse of the reign or kingdom of God lasting from the apostolic age to the present, particularly in our theology for evangelization. The reign or kingdom of God is God's own dream, his project for his world and for humanity. He made us dreamers and he wants us to be seduced by his dream and to dream with him. It is not we who dream, but God who dreams in us. When I left the seminary the first time, I had no clear idea of the kingdom of God, and I had no place in my theology for the second coming or parousia of Jesus. He goes on, thousands of books are printed and circulated every year on evangelization. Most of these fall into the category of methodology, the so-called how-to manuals for Christians and churches. But not all this activity or activism is a sign of health and creativity. It is obvious that our traditional mini-theologies of evangelization, the so-called plan of salvation, or the so-called four spiritual laws, do not do justice to the whole gospel. The good news of the kingdom is not the usual way we describe the gospel and evangelization. The kingdom of God theme has practically disappeared from evangelistic preaching and has been ignored by traditional so-called evangelism. The evangelistic message has been centered in personal salvation, individual conversion, and incorporation into the church. The kingdom of God as a parameter or perspective or as content of the proclamation has been virtually absent. Those interested in evangelization have not as yet been interested in the kingdom of God theme. Why not try Jesus' own definition of his mission and ours? For Jesus, evangelization was no more and no less than announcing the kingdom or reign of God. That's a quotation from Mortimer Arias in his book Announcing the Reign of God, written in 1984. I note that for further quotations from leading authorities about the almost total absence 
of the Kingdom of God from Church Gospel Teaching, please see my book, The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, free at our website, restorationfellowship.org. And also my Kingdom of God in the 20th Century Discussion and the Light of Scripture, published in the Evangelical Quarterly in 1992. For an excellent treatment of the New Testament Gospel of the Kingdom, please see The Gospel of the Kingdom by Wiley Jones, written in 1879. This translation attempts to restore to the Gospel of the Kingdom the central prominence it always enjoys throughout the New Testament. It's clear that Jesus was a Jew as the descendant of David. On no account should any reader of the New Testament in its own context imagine that Jesus believed in the trinity of post-biblical councils. In this translation, I make a concerted effort to remind readers of the unitary monotheistic faith of the New Testament, the definition of the Son of God as the Lord Messiah, who was born, as we find in Luke 2, verse 11, and not a second person of a triune Godhead. God cannot be born, and the immortal God cannot die. A great deal of refreshing simplicity and peace of mind results from reading the writings of the New Testament community in their Jewish first-century context. We are touching base with the original roots of the faith, and the New Testament comes alive in a brilliant way. Ignorance of the Bible produces a disastrous alienation from God, as we read in Ephesians 4, verse 18. Evidently, a lot of my fellow countrymen have abandoned the Bible entirely since they go to church regularly in the UK only at the rate of about 5%, and the rest only go to church to be, quote, hatched, matched, and dispatched. The confusion caused by the later, that's to say from the early 2nd century, the later fall from the original faith is gargantuan in its effects. It will take time to clear the air and defog our minds. We've been drinking toxic theology, and the church needs to be decontaminated. But the effort is well worth it, although revolutions are never without pain. Religion from the second century developed its own so-called improved version of the biblical drama presented in Scripture. The Bible itself is a gripping drama, portraying the great plan of God to bestow on human persons the gift of indestructible life, immortality. There will be peace on earth when the nations are required to beat swords into plowshares and learning to make war will never again be permitted.
no one will be permitted to take a gun and shoot his neighbor. This sounds like good sense and good news to me. From the second century, the emerging Catholic Church created its own embroidered version of the Bible's original plot and thus lost the plot for itself and its billions of followers. At the same time, the so-called improved version created a powerful and wealthy hierarchy designed to suppress the ignorant and guarantee a huge prestige to its priest leaders. They capped this effort finally by declaring the chief leader, the Pope, to be infallible when speaking officially. The spectacular drama of the origin of the unique Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, and I mean here his genesis or genesis in Matthew 1.18, this provided in the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke, but it was given an additional tabloid twist when Mary, a teenage virgin, was said to be herself always sinless, the doctrine of the so-called immaculate conception, and that she was permanently a virgin without sexual experience for her whole married life. Jesus' half-brothers had then to be denied that status and turned into cousins or children of Joseph by a previous marriage. Mary was said to have been assumed to heaven bodily without dying. The Roman Catholic Church assumed power over the secular state as the kingdom of God coming in advance of Jesus at his future second coming. In Scripture, the nations of this present world system are never the kingdom of God. The saints are not now ruling at present, though they will, and Jesus is the only ultimately legitimate king and world ruler. The system of faith promoted by the so-called new improved version of the biblical drama elevated priests as the only ones educated to minister the mysteries of the new faith. The laity were put under guardians, as Adolf Harnack put it in his History of Dogma, published in 1961. The control of millions of minds was ensured, and theological education was denied to all but leadership. The permanence of this massively powerful tradition was thus guaranteed. Harnack, as a master historian of the Christian faith, records the astonishing facts about the early history and suppression of the historical Christ by the pre-existent so-called Christ. He called it the Christ of reality 
replaced by the imagined Christ in dogmatics. Finally, he spoke of the victorious attempt to substitute the mystery of Christ for the actual person himself. The Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was provoked by the obvious abuses of the inherited system to call for change, but its reform was partial. The same mysterious triune God continued to replace the single God of the Bible, the Father of Jesus. Jesus' Unitarian heritage and definition of God, long suppressed by tradition, was not permitted in general to resurface from under the rubble of tradition which held the minds of the masses under its sway. Heaven, or its opposite, eternal hellfire, heaven or hell at death, as seen to be the destiny of immortal souls, so-called, continued to replace the biblical vision of resurrection in the future into the kingdom of God on a renewed earth which was the heart of the Hebrew dream of peace on earth, as well as the heart of the saving gospel of the kingdom announced by Jesus and the New Testament community. A smaller, more radical wing of the Reformation was cruelly suppressed when it challenged the theology of the major Reformation led by Luther and Calvin. Englishman John Biddle, a schoolmaster who exposed the error of the Trinity, had the so-called honor of having an act of the British Parliament passed against him, and he died in prison. His crime was merely to have pointed to the unvarnished simplicity of Jesus' own definition of God in the Shema. The, quote, Hear, O Israel, of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, quoted by Jesus in Mark 12, verse 29. The brilliant Spanish scholar Michael Servetus was burned at the stake at the instigation of Protestant reformer John Calvin in an act of unrepented brutality. Servetus' so-called crime was having shown that the Trinity is not a biblical doctrine. Does the public know of this atrocity in the name of religion? The emerging church achieved an enormous success by adding a number of show-stopping features to its version of the biblical drama. However, the casualty in this unfortunate development was the original divine drama of Scripture in two acts, offering to suffering mankind the hope of immortality and the place of responsibility in the future kingdom of God on earth when Jesus returns to take up his position 
on the restored throne of David. The original storyline and plot of the divine drama in the pages of Scripture was replaced with a dazzling but perverted story, a mixture of paganism and Scripture. Once we lose the plot of the astonishing drama, Scripture becomes confusing. Church tradition takes over and intelligent Bible reading is obstructed. Professor J. Harold Ellens makes our point, based on the clear testimony to what the Church has done with its central figure. I quote, It is time, therefore, for the Christian Church to acknowledge that it has a very special type of material which constitutes its creedal tradition. It is not a creedal tradition of biblical theology. It is not a unique, inspired, and authoritative word from God. It is rather a special kind of Greek religio-philosophical mythology. It should be candidly admitted by the Church, then, that its roots are not in Jesus of Nazareth, nor in the central tradition of biblical theology. Its roots are in Philonic Hellenistic Judaism and in the Christianized Neoplatonism of the second through the fifth century. Since this is so, the Church should acknowledge to the world of humans seeking truth and to the world of alternate religions that the Christian Church speaks only with its own historical and philosophical authority and appeal, and with neither a divine nor a unique revelation from Jesus Christ nor from God. That's a quotation from Professor Ellens's book, The Ancient Library of Alexandria and Early Christian Theological Development. The so-called complication of God through the addition of two other persons to the God known to Jesus led inevitably to the complication of the messianic personality of Jesus. Once he became God, true monotheism was violated. The result was this, and I quote, Jesus Christ was now no longer a man of flesh and blood like ourselves, but a pre-existing heavenly being of supernatural origin in human form. With the help of a metaphysical system taken over from Greek philosophy, Christological dogma came into being and an attempt was made to describe the person of Jesus Christ in the form of the so-called, quote, doctrine of two natures. That's to say, and I quote, Jesus Christ, true man and true God. So men said, from the very beginning, right up until the present day, the Church has been tempted to stress the so-called divinity or deity of Christ 
so one-sidedly that his manhood threatened to become a mere semblance. In this, Jesus Christ was made an historical abnormality. What happened to this Christ was no longer the fate of a man, but the fate of a remarkable shadowy fairy tale figure, half man and half God. Man has woven a golden veil of pious adoration, love, and superstition, and spread it over the rugged contours of God's action in history. That's a quotation from Heinz Zandt in his book, The Historical Jesus, written in 1963. Theologians lost themselves in a maze of obfuscating language and indignation at this lamentable exercise was well expressed by Harvard professor Andrews Norton in 1833 in his book, A Statement of Reasons for Not Believing the Doctrines of Trinitarians. He began with a scathing attack on the complex issue of how Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man at the same time. The doctrine of the communication of properties, says Leclerc, is as intelligible as if one were to say that there's a circle which is so united with the triangle that the circle has the properties of the triangle and the triangle those of the circle. This is discussed at length by Patavius with his usual redundance of learning. The vast folio of that writer containing the history of the Incarnation and Trinity is one of the most striking and most melancholy monuments of human folly which the world has to exhibit. In the history of other departments of science, we find abundant errors and extravagances. But orthodox theology seems to have been the peculiar region of words without meaning, of doctrines confessedly false in their proper sense and explained in no other, of the most portentous absurdities put forward as truths of the highest import, and of contradictory propositions thrown together without an attempt to reconcile them. A main error running through the whole system, as well as other systems of false philosophy, is that words possess an intrinsic meaning not derived from the usage of men, that they are not mere signs of human ideas, but a sort of real entities capable of signifying what transcends our conceptions, and that when they express to human reason only an absurdity, they may still be significant of a high mystery or a hidden truth, and are to be believed without being understood. From Cambridge in recent years comes an impressive analysis 
of the disaster that occurred when the Jewish Jesus was replaced by a pre-existing eternal son. The consequences of the process of reinterpretation by which the Son of God became identified with, quote, God the Son, are far-reaching indeed. Professor Lamp points out that when the Son was projected back onto an eternally existing pre-human Son, and when the Holy Spirit was turned into a third hypostasis, then, and I quote, Christian concept of God then becomes inescapably tritheistic. For three persons, in anything like the modern sense of the word person, mean, in fact, three gods. The effects, especially in popular piety, have been even more far-reaching than this. The Nicene Creed speaks of, quote, Jesus Christ in person, not the Logos as pre-existent. It is thus the Jesus of the Gospels, whom the imagination of the worshipper pictures as pre-existing in heaven and descending to earth. There is the absurdity of the picture of Jesus reflected in much traditional devotion, which is essentially that of a superman, very much like a Hindu avatar, who voluntarily descends into the world of ordinary mortals, choosing by a deliberate act of will to be born as man. God the Son is conceptualized as Jesus, Son of God. The obedience of Jesus, the servant of God and Son of God, the true Adam indwelt and inspired by God's Spirit, is attributed to God the Son. God the Son becomes eternally the subject of Jesus' self-dedication to his Father's will and eternally the object of the Father's love. This means, in effect, the abandonment of monotheism for such a relation between God the Son and God the Father is incompatible with the requirement of monotheism that we predicate of God one mind, one will, and one single operation. End of quotation from Professor Lamp. Professor Lamp was a specialist in the post-biblical development of the Trinity, and he observed also that, quote, the interpretation of Jesus as pre-existent Son and of the Son as a pre-existent Jesus causes inconsistency and confusion. This doctrine, which follows from the identification of Jesus with a pre-existent personal divine being is ultimately incompatible with the unity of God. End of quotation from Jeffrey Lamp's book, God as Spirit, written in 1983. 
Equally problematic for a true monotheism and a genuinely human Messiah is the Trinitarian concept of the Son as, quote, assuming human nature. Professor Lamp reminds us that, quote, a person is created by his relationships with other people and especially by his interaction with his parents and family. What happened then to the first century Galilean Jew, Jesus? He was lost and replaced by a philosophical abstraction whose identity as the son of David and thus the true and only Messiah became irrelevant. I quote again from Geoffrey Lamp, the Christological concept of the pre-existent divine son reduces the real socially and culturally conditioned personality of Jesus to the metaphysical abstraction human nature. It is this universal humanity which the son assumed and made his own. According to this Christology, the eternal son assumes a timeless human nature or makes it timeless by making it his own. It is a human nature which owes nothing essential to geographical circumstances. It corresponds to nothing in the actual concrete world. Jesus Christ has not, after all, really, quote, come in the flesh. End of quotation from Jeffrey Lamp in his book, God as Spirit, written in 1983. The observant reader will note that the professor rather obviously assigns to the orthodox doctrine of Jesus the label of Antichrist. It was the Apostle John who late in the New Testament period warned that any reduction of the human individual Jesus Christ to a personality not essentially human is a menace to true faith. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. The Jesus to be confessed as distinct from other false Jesuses is the one who has truly come in the flesh, that's to say, as a fully human person. Luther set the pattern for reading into John's theological test the post-biblical definition of Jesus. Luther mistranslates 1 John 4 verse 2 as, quote, Jesus Christ coming into the flesh. In this way, the doctrine of the Incarnation was thus imposed on John. Christianity is defined by God's purpose. The divine plan or word is discovered in the purpose statement of Jesus in Luke 4 verse 43. There he stated that the one God had commissioned him for the express purpose of announcing the good news or gospel about the coming kingdom of God. The purpose could have a frightful negative outcome. 
Jesus expressed this in Matthew 8, verses 11 to 12. He warned his fellow countrymen that they ran the risk of a colossal failure. I quote, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves being rejected, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To avoid this catastrophic negative outcome, Jesus exhorted the people and all of us to pay the closest attention to his teachings, which provide the only route to rescue and salvation, as to say, living forever. Jesus' first and last words are critically important. He begins by issuing a first and fundamental command that we are to repent and believe the gospel about the kingdom. Jesus called that the beginning of the gospel, as we find in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and verses 14 to 15. Jesus' last words summarize and re-emphasize the all-important matter of obedience to his teachings. These are found, for example, at the conclusion of his public ministry in John chapter 12, verses 44 to 50. The words or gospel of Jesus are the criterion for our future judgment. We neglect them at our peril. Since the words of Jesus are the words of God who commissioned and inspired him, Jesus cried out and said this, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words as a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment means eternal life or the life of the age to come. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. John 12, verses 44 to 50, as translated by the English Standard Version. Christianity is based on our making a choice between two different ways. The principle is beautifully encapsulated by John 3, verse 36, where belief in Jesus is equivalent to obedience and unbelief is refusal to obey. 
These stark alternatives are laid out for us in the introductory Psalm number one. Two contrasted lifestyles are depicted here. The one leading to disaster, to an extinction of life, and the other to indestructible life, as to say immortality in the future kingdom of God on a renewed earth. We all have to choose. In Calvinism, the word choose has been emptied of intelligible content. As early as the second century, would-be followers of Jesus began to lose the central storyline of God's great unfolding drama embodied in the gospel of the kingdom and the work of Jesus Christ. The influence of alien Greek philosophy confused the drama of salvation. The person of Jesus was replaced gradually by an abstract, quote, God the Son, who by definition really could not be a true human being since his origin was antedated prior to his actual origin as Son of God, which was in the womb of his mother, according to Luke 1. 35. Once this new form of belief affecting the central creed of the Bible had been worked out over a period of centuries, it was enforced on pain of death and excommunication. At the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, anathemas were attached to any who might question the church's central dogma. Readers of English versions of Scripture sometimes express their desire to have, quote, a literal translation of the original. What they really need is one that conveys the sense of the original, in this case Greek, faithfully into the target language. There are occasions when a so-called literal word-for-word -word translation is the least desirable. In fact, it can lead to nonsense. What if I render the English, quote, I'm pulling your leg, literally, or I have a frog in my throat, word-for-word? -word. The misunderstanding will be obvious. I'm mad about my flat can well mean, in British English, that I'm excited about my apartment. In the USA, it pictures a person angry about changing a flat tire. The expression in England, Jane and John have broken up, means in the UK that their school term is ended. But in the USA, quite a different sense would be conveyed. The list could be multiplied. Bouncing off the wall does not need to be translated literally into another language. It will mislead. More seriously, a literal word-for-word -word translation in John 17, verse 5, is misleading. Jesus' words translated word-for-word, word, glorify me with the glory I had with you 
lead or mislead the reader to think that Jesus was with the Father before he came into existence or was born. The Hebrew idiom, quote, to have something with someone means to have a reward promised and stored up in advance. Jesus warned that ostentatious performance of so-called good works will mean that we, quote, have, present tense, no reward with the Father. Matthew 6, verse 1. This means, of course, that if we do well, we now have a reward stored up for the future, a reward to be given at the return of Jesus. Jesus, in the very same discourse in John 17, spoke of having given glory to Christians who were not even born when he made that promise, as in verse 22. It was the same glory which had been promised to Jesus by the Father. It is glory prepared and planned in heaven with the Father, ready to be bestowed in the future. Jesus asked in John 17, 5, to be rewarded with the glory promised to him at the completion of his ministry. It was a glory stored up and promised by God from the beginning. It was not a glory to be restored to him since he had never yet had it. This is parallel exactly to the misleading idea conveyed by the NIV in some places. In John, the NIV takes liberties with the text in the interests of inherited dogma. It makes Jesus say what he did not say. The NIV renders John 16 verse 28, John 13 verse 3, and John 20 verse 17 as, quote, going back or returning to the Father. But the historical Jesus had not been there yet. There's a world of difference between going, which is what John wrote, and going back. Another example of misleading translation is found in many versions of Luke 23, verse 43. It's a matter of punctuation. Since Jesus had not yet been to the Father on the Sunday of his resurrection, John 20, verse 17, he could not have promised the thief a place in his presence that day, the day of his death. Jesus was abandoned to the grave, the world of the dead, until his resurrection on Sunday. Acts 2, verse 27 verse 31 and verse 32. The thief had asked to be remembered when Jesus comes back in the future, inaugurating his kingdom. Jesus' promise goes beyond the request and assures him on that very day that he would indeed be with Jesus in that future kingdom of God, the paradise restored as we read in Revelation 2, verse 7. I quote, I say to you today, in other words, you don't have to wait until the future for this assurance that you will be with me in the future paradise of the kingdom. 
Compare with that Acts chapter 20, verse 26. In this way, one verse will not be made to contradict Luke in chapter 14 and verse 14 and Luke 20, verse 35, where rewards are not to be given until the resurrection. Nor will that one verse be made to contradict and confuse the rest of Scripture. There are, of course, verses which in their sublime simplicity and clarity ought to be definitive. Most striking of these is Luke 1, verse 35, where the words of the angel define with precision the meaning of the title, the Son of God. Very few verses come with their own so-called built-in definition, but Luke 1, verse 35 does. No footnotes are needed, no special glossary. Luke 1, verse 35 includes its own lucid explanation. Gabriel defined how, why, and where Jesus is to be Son of God. Son of God is who Jesus is because of, precisely because of, in the Greek, the okay, precisely because of the miracle worked by God in the womb of Mary. It is precisely for that reason and no other that Jesus is the Son of God. This defining statement rules out at once any possibility of a so-called eternally begotten Son. Luke and Gabriel could not have been Trinitarians, and nor was Jesus, as we read in Mark 12, verse 29, and John 17, verse 3. The celebrated commentary on Luke by Godet got it right when he stated, I quote, By the word, therefore, the angel alludes to his preceding words. He will be called the Son of the Highest. We might paraphrase it, I quote, And it is precisely for this reason that I said to you, We have then here, from the mouth of the angel himself, an authentic explanation of the term Son of God in the former part of his message. After this explanation, Mary could only understand the title Son of God in this sense, a human being of whose existence God himself is the immediate author. It does not convey the idea of pre-existence. End of quotation from Godet's commentary on Luke, written in 1881. Alas, the church disregarded the explicit theology of Gabriel. Alas, too, Godet did not, as he should have, provoke a complete rethinking of Christology. Instead, there has occurred a flurry of plain contradictions of the text to uphold beloved, conciliar, so-called orthodoxy. 
The striking example of these is the statement of Dr. John MacArthur. I quote, I do not believe that the virgin birth alone proves that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, John is not the Son of God because he was born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin because he was the Son of God. Jesus existed long before Mary, so said John MacArthur, an item entitled Unleashing God's Word One Word at a Time. Note that MacArthur is in direct opposition to Scripture and Gabriel. J.P. Mackey rightly criticizes J.G. Davies when he says that, quote, this creative act did not bring into being a new person. Mackey says, with this kind of cobbling, any theological conclusion could be so-called proved from Scripture. That's a quotation from The Christian Experience of God as Trinity by J.P. Mackey, written in 1983. So brain-breakingly complicated and abstract were the terms of what became the official creed that the Unitarian scholar and poet John Milton was moved to lament the appallingly confused language in which it was presented as dogma. I quote from John Milton, Christ himself, therefore, the Son of God, teaches us nothing in the gospel respecting the one God, but what the law had before taught, and everywhere clearly asserts him to be his Father. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. If, therefore, the Father is the God of Christ, and the same one is our God, and if there is no God but one, then there can be no God besides the Father. Though all this is so self-evident as to require no explanation, namely that the Father alone is a self-existent God, that a being which is not self-existent cannot be God, it is wonderful with what futile subtleties, or rather with what juggling artifices, certain individuals have endeavored to elude or obscure the plain meaning of these passages, leaving no stone unturned, recurring to every shift, attempting every means, as if their object were not to preach the pure and unadulterated truth of the gospel to the poor and the simple, but rather by dint of vehemence and obstinacy to sustain some absurd paradox from falling. By the aid of sophisms and verbal distinctions borrowed from the barbarous ignorance of the schools. And a quotation from John Milton in his book On the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. 
Sir Isaac Newton was no less scathing about the very non-Jewish definition of God as Trinity. I quote, Newton became almost obsessed with the desire to purge Christianity of its mythical doctrines. He became convinced that the irrational dogmas of the Trinity and the Incarnation were the result of conspiracy, forgery, and chicanery. Newton maintained that the spurious doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity had been added to the Creed by unscrupulous theologians in the 4th century. Indeed, the Book of Revelation had prophesied the rise of Trinitarianism. I quote, This strange religion of ye West, the cult of three equal gods, as the abomination of desolation. That's a quotation as reported by Karen Armstrong in her book, The Battle for God. Bible readers need a fresh reading of the New Testament with some of the encumbrance of later so-called orthodoxy, which now blocks a clear understanding, removed. No translation is final, of course. There's no perfect translation. There are scores of different ways of conveying the same proposition. Most of the New Testament is perfectly intelligible in many of the different versions. Readers of the Bible should avail themselves of various translations. No one translation conveys all of the truth, but some do much better than others. Some contemporary commentary on the traditional doctrine of the incarnation of, quote, God the Son, becoming a man, ought, we suggest, to shock readers into the realization that something has gone terribly wrong. Dr. Jim Packer is well known for his evangelical writings. In his widely read Knowing God, in a chapter on God incarnate, he says of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Incarnation, and I quote, Here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of the persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and the most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word was made flesh. John 1.14 God became man. The Divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, 
the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. It is here that Jews, Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses have come to grief. If he was truly God the Son, it is much more startling that he should die than that he should rise again. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies, wrote Charles Wesley. And if the immortal Son of God really did submit to taste death, it is not strange that such a death should have saving significance for a doomed race. Once we grant that Jesus was divine, it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of this. It is all of a piece and hangs together completely. The Incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. End of quotation from J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God, written in 1998. If the lucidly simple description of the Son of God proposed by Luke had been allowed to stand as the official doctrine of the Son of God, the course of the Christian faith and of church history would have been vastly different. I quote, The holy thing begotten in you will be called the Son of God. See Luke 1 verse 35 and Matthew 1 verse 20. These statements were and are easy enough. But when evangelicals rewrite the biblical story and read into it an eternal Son of God, this is the result. Charles Swindoll, Chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary, writes on December the 25th, shops shut their doors, families gather together, and people all over the world remember the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Many people assume that Jesus' existence began like ours in the womb of his mother. But is that true? Did life begin for him with that first breath of Judean air? Can a day in December truly mark the beginning of the Son of God? Unlike us, Jesus existed before his birth, long before there was air to breathe, long before the world was born. Charles Swindoll goes on to explain, John the Baptist came into being at his birth. He had a birthday. Jesus never came into being. At his earthly birth, he merely took on human form. Here's an amazing thought. The baby that Mary held in her arms was holding the universe in place. The little newborn lips that cooed and cried 
once formed the dynamic words of creation. Those tiny clutching fists once flung stars into space and planets into orbit. That infant flesh so fair once housed the almighty God. As an ordinary baby, God had come to earth. Do you see the child and the glory of the infant God? What you are seeing is the incarnation, God dressed in diapers. See the baby as John described him in the beginning with God. Imagine him in the misty pre-creation past, thinking of you and planning your redemption. Visualize this same Jesus who wove your body's intricate patterns, knitting a human garment for himself. Long ago, the Son of God dove headfirst into time and floated along with us for about 33 years. Imagine the Creator God tightly wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's a quotation from Jesus, When God Became a Man, by Charles Swindoll, published in 1993. Dr. Swindoll then quotes Max Lucado, who says of Jesus, He left his home and entered the womb of a teenage girl. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him, from Chuck Swindoll. No one opening a New Testament and reading the matchless story of the origin of Jesus will be misled into thinking that, quote, God was born, or that as a Roman Catholic priest said on television, quote, God came to Mary and said, will you please be my mother? We offer this version of the New Testament with a view to restoring the truth that God is one person, that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God by miracle, and that the saving gospel is about the kingdom of God as Jesus preached it, and about all that Jesus said and did to instruct in the way that leads to indestructible life in the future kingdom of God on earth. Jesus, of course, spoke in Paul too, and the other writers of the New Testament scripture. But none of these writers discarded the precious writings of the Hebrew Bible, but developed the truths of the New Covenant working from a base in the Hebrew Scriptures, which Jesus had endorsed as inspired canon in Luke 24, verse 44. If we are seeking the mind of Christ, the obvious place to start is with Mark chapter 1, verses 1 and verses 14 to 15, which is Jesus' opening first command to us all. I quote, Jesus came announcing the gospel of God, and he said, The time predicted has come. 
The kingdom of God is coming soon. Repent and believe that gospel about the kingdom. God's gospel is the gospel of salvation, which originates in God, and God's saving gospel about the kingdom was preached by all the New Testament writers, and of course, first by Jesus himself. Hebrews 2, verse 3. God issues the ultimate statement about the kingdom and his great immortality program. And this is modeled in the man Jesus and taught by him as saving gospel in addition, of course, to his substitutionary death and resurrection. The so-called testimony of Jesus in Revelation means Jesus' own gospel preaching, which one must hear to be saved. As we find in Romans 10, verses 14 to 17, and Luke 8, verse 12. The gospel of the age to come. Revelation 14, verse 6. The kingdom about to begin. As we read in Luke 21, verse 31. And Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18. Compare with that Luke chapter 19, verses 11 and following. Repentance means a complete reorientation in thinking and understanding and in lifestyle. The first command of Jesus is thus to believe the gospel about the kingdom of God, which is the empire of the Messiah, certainly not just a so-called figurative kingdom in the heart. Some translations, such as Ferrar Fenton's, correctly renders Daniel 2.44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will establish an everlasting empire, which is indestructible, whose sovereignty will not be transferred to another people. Thus also in Daniel 7, verse 17, 18, 22, and 27, I quote, Those four great beasts, which you have seen are four great empires which will be established on the earth. The saints of the Most High will afterwards take the empire and possess it forever and ever. The time came for the saints to possess the empire, the empire and dominion and grandeur of the empire under the whole heavens will be given to the holy people of the Most High. All nations will serve and obey them. Hence the reward of the faithful in the New Testament is nowhere said to be going to heaven, but, quote, having the governorship of ten towns or five towns. Luke 19 verses 17 and 19. Jesus echoed this same gospel promise when he said to the apostles, I quote, You who have followed me in the new birth, when the Son of Man will sit on his throne of glory, you will sit 
on twelve thrones, reigning over the twelve tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, verse 28. Paul was surprised that his converts had forgotten the elementary truth that the saints, quote, are going to govern the world. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Jesus will be head of state in the coming kingdom and the saints will be his assistants, associate rulers and princes. For this, see Daniel 2, verse 44, Daniel 7, verses 14, 18, 22, and 27, and Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1. I quote, In Revelation, the eternal messianic kingdom is placed on a renovated earth so that Christ comes to his people on earth rather than gathering them to a heavenly abode. That's a quotation from David Orn's Word Biblical Commentary on Revelation 17 to 22, written in 1998. In order to get off to the right start with Bible reading, it's essential that Jesus' saving gospel of the kingdom be understood. What better place to define the kingdom than with the gospel of Matthew? The analysis of Matthew's phrase, kingdom of God, or its exact synonym, kingdom of heaven, offered by Professor W.C. Allen of Oxford, is lucidly clear. And since the kingdom is the key term for understanding all New Testament preaching, we offer the professor's following fine statement. To misunderstand kingdom is to misunderstand the whole New Testament teaching about the gospel which saves us and leads to immortality. I quote, The kingdom, the central subject of Christ's doctrine, with this Jesus began his ministry, Matthew 4 verse 17, and wherever he went, he taught this as good news or gospel. Matthew 4, verse 23. The kingdom he taught was coming, but not in his lifetime. After his ascension, he would come as Son of Man on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 16, verse 27. Matthew 19, verse 28. Matthew 24, verse 30. And Matthew 25, verse 31. And he would then sit on the throne of of his glory. Then the twelve apostles would sit on twelve thrones, judging or administering the twelve tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, verse 28. In the meantime, he himself must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. How else could he come on the clouds of heaven? And his disciples were to preach the good news or gospel of the coming kingdom. Matthew 10, verse 7, Matthew 24, verse 14, among all nations, making disciples by water baptism. Matthew 28, verse 18, the body of disciples thus gained would naturally form 
a society bound by common aims. Hence the disciples of the kingdom would form a new spiritual Israel. Matthew 21, verse 43. And compare with that Galatians 6, verse 16, and Philippians 3, verse 3. In view of the needs of this new Israel of Christ's disciples who were to await his coming on the clouds of heaven, it is natural that a large part of the teaching recorded in the gospel should concern the qualifications required in those who hoped to enter the kingdom when it came. Thus the parables convey some lesson about the nature of the kingdom and the period of preparation for it. That's to say, sowing comes before harvest. The parables taught lessons about the kingdom of the heavens in the sense in which that phrase is used everywhere else in his gospel, as to say, of the kingdom which was to come when the Son of Man came upon the clouds of heaven. Thus the parable of the sower illustrates the varying reception met with by the good news gospel of the kingdom as it's preached amongst men. That of the tares also deals not with the kingdom itself, but with the period of preparation for it. At the end of the age, the Son of Man will come to inaugurate his kingdom. There is nothing here or elsewhere in this gospel to suggest that the scene of the kingdom is other than the present world renewed, restored, and purified. End of quotation from W.C. Allen, found in the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. I note that the same view of the kingdom is expressed by Allen in his commentary on Matthew in the series The International Critical Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, published in 1907. The last sentence of our quotation makes the excellent point that Matthew and the whole New Testament, indeed the whole Bible, does not expect believers to, quote, go to heaven, but that Jesus will come back to the earth to rule with them on a renewed earth. Revelation 5, verses 9 to 10, Matthew 5, verse 5, Daniel 7, verses 14, 18, 22, and 27. The perceptive reader of the New Testament will note the striking difference between the biblical view of the kingdom and thus of the gospel of salvation and what in post-biblical times was substituted for it a departure of the faithful at death to a realm removed from the earth. I note that Bishop Tom Wright tries to have both systems when he speaks of life after life after death. Much better to shed the philosophically based life before resurrection, which always means 
coming not from life, but from death. There can be no resurrection from the dead if a person is not really dead. The popular idea that the kingdom is mainly a, quote, spiritual state of mind or lifestyle now or social ethics expecting to bring the kingdom in now is false to the New Testament. Joseph of Arimathea, a Christian, was, quote, waiting for the kingdom after the ministry of Jesus. Mark 15, verse 43 and Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27, teaches us to connect the arrival of the kingdom with the future return of Jesus. Compare with that, the kingdom he taught was coming, but not in his lifetime. So say leading analysts of the gospel records. Luke 21, verse 31, presents the kingdom of God as the event to be introduced at the second coming. This is exactly Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 18, the kingdom of God beginning at the future seventh resurrection trumpet, the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, and verses 52 to 55. We may add a further statement from a recognized authority on Luke. I quote, It cannot really be disputed that Luke means by the kingdom a future entity. The spiritualizing so-called interpretation according to which the kingdom is present in the spirit and in the church is completely misleading. It is the message of the kingdom that is present, which in Luke is distinguished from the kingdom itself. Luke knows nothing at all of an imminent, that's to say, already present development on the basis of the preaching of the kingdom. That's a quotation from Hans Konzelmann in his book, The Theology of St. Luke, published in 1961. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia gets the emphasis on the future right and thus clarifies the Christian gospel and thus the Christian faith. I quote, The kingdom of God is at hand had the inseparable connotation judgment is at hand. And in this context, repent as in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, repent must mean lest you be judged. I note that the popular notion of an unending, torturous hellfire for the wicked is utterly unbiblical. The fate of the incorrigibly wicked, after full exposure to the gospel, is annihilation, ceasing to exist. See Edward Fudge's book, The Fire That Consumes, with its forward by F. F. Bruce. Our Lord's teaching about salvation had primarily a future content, positively admission 
into, that's to say, entrance into the kingdom of God, and negatively, deliverance from the preceding judgment of fire. So the kingdom of God is the highest good of Christ's teaching. Man's nature is to be perfectly adapted to his spiritual environment, and man is to be with Christ, as we read in Luke 22, verse 30, and with the patriarchs, as found in Matthew 8, verse 11. Whatever the kingdom is, it is most certainly not exhausted by a mere reformation of the present order of material things. That's a quotation from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia of 1929. Equally clear on the kingdom is Eduard Schweitzer. I quote, Mark 1, verses 14 to 15. Mark gives a brief summary of the preaching of Jesus. Preaching and good news, or gospel, are Mark's favorite expressions. The gospel call of Jesus is accurately summed up in Mark 1, verse 15, where the association of repentance and faith reveals the language of the church. As we find in Acts 5, verse 31, Acts 11, verse 18, and Acts 20, verse 21. Mark's concern is to make clear that in this preaching, Jesus continues to go forth into the world, and this call, therefore, is being directed also to the one who reads this gospel today. Consequently, this section serves as a caption to the whole Gospel of Mark. The Kingdom of God. When Jesus proclaims that the Kingdom of God is near, he's adopting a concept which was coined in the Old Testament. Although it denotes God's sovereignty over creation, as in Psalm 103, verse 19, Psalm 145, verses 11 and following, Kingdom of God refers primarily to God's unchallenged sovereignty in the end time. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Judaism spoke of the reign of God, which comes after the annihilation of every foe. Isaiah 24, verse 6. And the end of all suffering. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God is conceived, first of all, as something in the future. Mark 9, verse 1 and 47. Mark 14, verse 25. Matthew 13, verses 41 to 43. And Matthew 20, verse 21. Luke 22, verse 16 and 18. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Luke 21, verse 31. And so on. It's a kingdom which comes from God, Mark 9, verse 1, Matthew 6, verse 10, Luke 17, verse 20, and Luke 19, verse 11. Therefore, it is something man can only wait for, as in Mark 15, verse 43. One can seek it, Matthew 6, verse 33, receive it, 
Mark 10, 15, compare with that Luke 12, verse 32, and inherit the kingdom, as in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and following, Galatians 5, verse 21, James 2, verse 5. But one is not able to create it by himself. In the acts and words of Jesus, the future kingdom has come upon him already. It is decided at that very moment whether or not he will ever be in the kingdom. Repentance is nothing less than a wholehearted commitment to the gospel or good news of the kingdom. That's from a book called The Good News According to Mark, written in 1970. Ernest Scott, professor of New Testament at Union Theological Seminary, on the other hand, reveals the hopeless confusion into which the church has fallen in regard to Jesus' gospel and thus the Christian faith. He seems uncertain about the gospel, but gives us a good sense of what it meant to Jesus and his followers. I quote, It seems almost impossible to define the Christian gospel. Sometimes it's identified with our religion as a whole, sometimes with some element in it which is regarded as central. To accept the gospel is to believe in the atonement or the love of God, or the revelation in Christ, or the fact of human brotherhood. That last statement is certainly questionable. That was my comment there. He goes on, Yet it is well to remember that the word which is now used so loosely had, at the outset, a meaning which was clearly understood. I quote, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel underwent a marvelous development, but the good news has always been essentially what it was at the first, the announcement of the kingdom. It is evident from the manner in which Jesus made the announcement that he took up an idea which was already familiar. He did not explain what he meant by the kingdom, for he could assume that all his hearers were looking forward to it. Their hope for the kingdom had been newly stimulated by John the Baptist. They had long been thinking of the kingdom and wondering when it would come, and a prophet had now arisen who declared that it was close at hand. In the religion of Israel, we must seek for the immediate origin of the kingdom idea of Jesus. The idea persisted long after the royal house was firmly established that the reigning king was only the vice-regent of the invisible king. Israel had been chosen by a unique God who was known as yet only by his own people, but was nonetheless king of the whole earth. The day was coming when all nations would own his sovereignty. On the higher levels of prophecy, the purified Israel of the future is conceived as attracting all nations by its high example, 
to the service of the one God. More often, it's assumed that Israel, when fully disciplined, will be restored to God's favor and advanced by him to the sovereign place, as in Acts 1.6. As king of this preeminent people, God will reign at last over the world. On the one hand, God is already king. On the other hand, it is recognized that the kingship lies in the future. They looked for a coming day when God will overcome all usurping powers and assert himself as king. So the prophets keep before them the vision of a new age when the kingdom of God will be fully manifested. In that happy time, Israel will be exalted, the cause of justice will be established, the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. Nature in that day will be restored to its pristine glory, and the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the cattle will feed in large pastures. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. He, God, and his Messiah will reign from Mount Zion, and all nations will serve him. King over a righteous nation, God will extend his dominion over the whole earth. That's from a book called The Kingdom of God in the New Testament, written in 1931. The admission of one of today's leading evangelical scholars, N.T. Wright, confirms the chaos into which the gospel has fallen. In one sense, he says, I've been working on this book on and off for most of my life. Serious thought began, however, when I was invited in 1978 to give a lecture in Cambridge on the gospel in the gospels. The topic was not just impossibly vast. I did not understand it. I had no real answer. Then, to the question of how Jesus' whole life, not just his death on the cross in isolation, but his whole life was somehow gospel. Fifteen subsequent years of teaching in Cambridge, in Montreal and Oxford, have convinced me that this question is worth asking. That's a quotation from Jesus and the Victory of God, written in 1996. And I say this, but the question is just as mystifying to millions of Bible readers. This ought not to be so. Further authorities point us in the right direction. In the book of Acts, the kingdom of God was still the general formula for the substance of Christian teaching, Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible. This formula, the kingdom of God, I say, is absent from evangelical tracts promoting salvation. On the lips of Jesus, the term kingdom of God unquestionably summarized the very heart of his message. I quote, the kingdom of God is the central theme of the teaching of Jesus and it involves his whole understanding of his own person and work. So said Alan Richardson in his theological word book of the Bible written in 1950. 
Luke 4.43 is repeated by Paul in Acts 20, verses 24 to 25, where Paul defines his own ministry as the gospel of the grace of God as equal to the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Another quotation, the kingdom announced by the Messiah, who is the Son of Man, is possible only through his death and will be finally and fully realized on earth only at his glorious return. This is indeed the heart of the gospel. So said Donald Hagner in the Word Biblical Commentary on Matthew, written in 1993. The essential understanding conveyed by Jesus' teaching is captured by these propositions about Messiah. Quote, the Son of God came to give us an understanding so that we might know God. 1 John 5, verse 20. Another quotation. By his knowledge, my servant will make many righteous. Isaiah 53, verse 11. The New Testament is based on the Old. Jesus came to, one, proclaim the gospel about the kingdom of God. Luke 4, verse 43. John announced the same gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 3, verse 1. This is the whole reason for Christianity, including, of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus commands believers to continue announcing the same gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Secondly, Christianity means exactly what Jesus intended, to confirm the Abrahamic and Davidic promises made to the fathers, according to Romans 15, verse 8, and Galatians 3, verse 8. Thirdly, to give us an understanding that we might know God, 1 John 5, verse 20. Fourthly, to make people righteous, that's to say right before God, not only by his death, but by his knowledge. Isaiah 53, verse 11, and Daniel 12, verse 3. Fifthly, to invite whoever will believe in God's plan for themselves and for the world to prepare now to rule the world with Jesus when he returns. I quote, don't you know the saints are going to manage the world? Those are Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Moffat translation has that translation with the word manage the world. See also Daniel 7, verse 14, verse 18, verse 22, verse 27, Revelation 3, verse 21, Revelation 2, verse 26, Revelation 5, verse 10, and Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. Matthew 5, verse 5, Matthew 19, 28, Isaiah 16, verse 5, and Isaiah 32, verse 1. Sixthly, Jesus came to sow the seed message of the gospel of the kingdom in Luke 8, 12, and Mark 4, 11 to 12, an intelligent reception of the kingdom gospel is the necessary condition 
for repentance and forgiveness. Without a clear statement about the kingdom, how can anyone repent and believe Jesus? In post-biblical times, the original faith in the gospel of the kingdom suffered massive alteration, turning the gospel into something quite different. Greeks, rather than Jews, became leaders in the church, and they imported alien Greek philosophy into the church's teachings. Galatians 3 verse 8, which defines the Christian gospel as the content of the promises made to Abraham about land, progeny, and blessing, all of that is missing from the contemporary versions of the gospel. Billy Graham was mistaken when he claimed that, quote, Jesus came to do three days' work, to die, to be buried, and to rise. This dictum would render the gospel preaching of Jesus virtually unnecessary. A fatal, quote, dispensationalism underlies much popular preaching. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, and 2 John 7 to 9, Hebrews 2, verse 3, and John 3, 36, are fair warning against forgetting or neglecting the teachings of Jesus. Perhaps the most profoundly disturbing saying of Jesus is the one in Matthew 7, verse 21. I quote, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Rather, it is those who do the will of my Father in heaven. There will be many who say to me, on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not preach for you and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles with your authority? Then I will declare to them, I never recognized you. Depart from me, you who practice wickedness. This statement is made in the closest connection with Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, where Jesus warns, Enter the kingdom through the narrow entrance, because wide is the entrance and broad the way which leads to destruction, and many go that way. But small is the entrance, and narrow is the way which leads to life in the kingdom, and only a few find it. But then in the very same breath, Jesus said, Beware false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inside are vicious wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. That's in Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16. Compare with that the parable of the sower to see what seed is necessary to produce true fruit. Matthew 13, 19, the word about the kingdom, as also in Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. Now connect this to Jesus' other reference to people saying, Lord, Lord, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you refuse to do what I say? Let me give you an example of someone who comes to me 
hears my words and does them. He is like a man building a house. That's in Luke 6, verses 46 to 48. The one hearing the words or teaching of Jesus, but not doing them, is building his house without a foundation. Only the ones hearing and obeying the word or words of Jesus are the true Christians. So then, the strong and alarming warning of Jesus is simply this. It's fatal to address Jesus as Lord if we do not also lay the foundation of believing his gospel teaching and teachings, the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, Jesus without his gospel of the kingdom, word and words, is a false counterfeit Jesus. Calling Jesus Lord and not believing his teachings and words is the fatal trap into which we must not fall. False prophets are those who speak of Jesus but not of his gospel teachings and words. When the phrase gospel of the kingdom is absent, beware, be alarmed. This central and dramatic warning was so essential that it was repeated by both the apostles Paul and John. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, Paul said, If anyone comes to you and does not bring the teachings of Jesus, be alarmed and beware, you're being scammed. John repeated exactly the same apostolic warning in 2 John 7 to 9. I quote, Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not accept that Jesus Messiah has come as a fully human being. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Everyone who in the name of progress does not remain in the teaching of the Messiah does not have God. The person who remains in Jesus' teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring that teaching, do not welcome him into your house or greet him as a fellow believer. We are to distance ourselves from anyone who does not stress, emphasize, and insist on the gospel teaching and teachings of Messiah Jesus. Now please listen to these statements from recent times. Dr. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Ministries, who died in 2007, wrote the following. Many people today think that the essence of Christianity is the teachings of Jesus, but that's not so. The teachings of Jesus are somewhat secondary to Christianity. If you read the epistles of the Apostle Paul, which make up about half of the New Testament, you'll see almost nothing whatsoever said about the teachings of Jesus. Not one of Jesus' parables is mentioned. In fact, throughout the rest of the New Testament, there's little reference to the teachings of Jesus. 
In the Apostles' Creed, the most universally held Christian creed, there's no reference to the teachings of Jesus or to the example of Jesus. In fact, in recounting Christ's earthly life, the creed states simply that he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. It mentions only two days in Jesus' life, that of his birth and that of his death. Christianity centers not in the teachings of Jesus, but in the person of Jesus as the incarnate God who came into the world to take upon himself our guilt and to die in our place. That's a statement from D. James Kennedy and Jerry Newcomb in a work called The Presence of a Hidden God and the chapter How I Know Jesus is God, 2008. Also this from Dr. Kennedy. But Jesus says, I am the way. It's not the teachings of Jesus. It's not the preaching of Jesus. It's not the example of Jesus. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the Beatitudes or anything else that he taught or said that is the way. The way is Christ himself, the divine second person of the Trinity, the creator of the galaxies that came into this world. That's from an item called The Only Way, Daily Truth Devotional. This, I suggest, is a huge and glaring falsehood. Since Paul preached the same gospel of the kingdom, as did Jesus, to all, to Jews and Gentiles alike, as in Acts 14, verse 22, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verses 24 to 25, Acts 28, verses 23 to 31. And now another equally astonishing and alarming statement from another top evangelical scholar, Dr. Harold O.J. Brown. He says, and I quote, Christianity takes its name from its founder, or rather from what he was called, the Christ. Buddhism is also named for its founder. The non-Muslim often call Islam Mohammedanism. But while Buddhism and Islam are based primarily on the teaching of the Buddha and Muhammad, respectively, Christianity is based primarily on the person of Christ. The Christian faith is not belief in his teaching, but in what is taught about him. The appeal of Protestant liberals to believe as Jesus believed, rather than to believe in Jesus, is a dramatic transformation of the fundamental nature of Christianity. That's a statement from Harold O.J. Brown in a book called Heresies, written in 1984. That statement, I suggest, is a colossal falsehood. You cannot believe in Jesus 
and not believe his teaching. Then also C.S. Lewis. Lewis denies Jesus while claiming to follow him. He wrote, I quote, The Gospels are not the Gospel, the statement of Christian belief. That's from C.S. Lewis' introduction to J.B. Phillips' letters to young churches. The Gospels are not the Gospel, Lewis said. They're not the statement of Christian belief. End of quotation. So then, the words of Jesus are not the gospel. This must be the ultimate falsehood, the ultimate deception. So Jesus has to be rescued from so-called church. Dr. James Dunn says this, Hurtado does not think it necessary for Jesus to have thought and spoken of himself in the same terms as his followers thought and spoke of him in the decades subsequent to his crucifixion in order for the convictions of those followers to be treated as valid by Christians today. Though he also notes that most Christians probably think that there was, quote, some degree of continuity between what Jesus thought of himself and subsequent Christology. That's from a book called Did the First Christians Worship Jesus? But I asked the question, has Dr. James Dunn read the New Testament? Professor Richard Hyers made this amazingly illuminating admission. I quote, Interpreters of Christian persuasion have ordinarily not been especially interested in what Jesus intended and did in his own time. That's from Jesus and the Future, written in 1981. Note this carefully from Dr. H. A. Wolfson, leading authority on what the post-biblical so-called Church Fathers did. I quote, the Church Fathers' conception of the Trinity was a combination of Jewish monotheism and pagan polytheism, except that to them this combination was a good combination. In fact, it was to them an ideal combination of what is best in Jewish monotheism and of what is best in pagan polytheism and consequently they gloried in it and pointed to it as evidence of their belief. We have on this the testimony of Gregory of Nyssa, one of the great figures in the history of the philosophic formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. His words are repeated by John of Damascus, the last of the Church Fathers. The Christian conception of God, argues Gregory of Nyssa, is neither the polytheism of the Greeks nor the monotheism of the Jews, and consequently it must be true, for the truth passes in the mean, in the middle, that is, between these two conceptions, destroying each 
heresy, and they are accepting what is useful to it from each. The Jewish dogma is destroyed by the acceptance of the word and by belief in the spirit, while the polytheistic error of the Greek school is made to vanish by the unity of the nature abrogating this imagination of plurality. That was from his oration Catechetica, number 13. And the quotation was from Wolfson, The Philosophy of the Church Fathers. The Church Fathers admitted that they were rejecting the Jewish, but note that's also Jesus' understanding of God. They worked out of the later fearfully complicated definitions of God and Jesus in relation to God, and they found themselves caught in a web of impossibly difficult arguments, trying to explain how God can be one and at the same time three. But the easy truth is this. I quote, There is no indication that Jesus would have understood the Father, from whom he felt himself to have been sent, and to whom he probably felt himself to be related in a special way, differently from the monotheistic God of Judaism. So said Karl Heinz Ohlich in his book One or Three, written in 2000. The Shema was the prayer which all pious Jews were expected to recite three times daily. It occupied a similar special position in late Judaism to the Lord's Prayer in Christianity. That is very true. But then Dr. Anderson speaks of, quote, the church that did not any longer recite the Shema. But here, at least in the statement of the first commandment by Jesus, Jesus stands four square within the orbit of Jewish piety. So said Hugh Anderson in his New Century Bible commentary on Mark. But on what authority, I ask, was this fundamental teaching of Jesus, defining the one true God, discarded? The church did not abandon the Lord's Prayer. Why abandon the Lord's Creed? The process of restoration is furthered when people earnestly seek the original meaning of the kingdom of God as preached as gospel by the original human Jesus. The gospel itself is all about the kingdom of God as well as the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the word gospel should never be divorced from the kingdom. The pagan notion of, quote, heaven for souls, immortal souls, at death has replaced the hope of the kingdom coming on earth in the future. That paganism must be banished from the Christian vocabulary if the Bible is to be understood. This necessary return to, quote, the faith 
once and for all delivered to the saints. As Jude said in verse 3, this can be facilitated by the constant use of what might be called comprehensive summary verses, which encapsulate the basic, non-negotiable truths of Scripture. These would be a new set of, quote, John 3.16s. For example, brilliant summaries are supplied by John 3.36, Hebrews 5, verse 9, Acts 8, verse 12, Luke 8, verse 12, Mark 1, verses 14 to 15, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, and many others. These verses which are strikingly absent from contemporary preaching, will provide a framework within which the complete biblical story of man's destiny will become clear to Bible readers. The HarperCollins Bible Dictionary states, and I quote, the gospel is the proclamation of the kingdom announced by Jesus. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. And now proclaimed by the church. But is it? Do churches, in fact, preach the gospel of the kingdom? One might say that the churches are playing golf with the club held upside down. A complete restructuring is needed. No cosmetic alterations will solve the problem. There's a fatal flaw in the foundation of what we know as the faith. The kingdom of God gospel is missing in current preaching, or at best hopelessly vague. Gary Burge says in the NIV application commentary, I quote, Stanley Grentz has reviewed the failed attempts of evangelical theology to fire the imagination of the modern world. He argues for, quote, the kingdom of God as the new organizing center of what we say and do. It ought to be and must be if Jesus in Luke 4.43 is really heard and Paul in Acts chapter 20, verses 24 and 25 and also in Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, and compare with that Acts 8, verse 12. Do seminaries understand the gospel? I quote, Over the course of the past year, faculty from each of Fuller's three schools have met together to discuss the question, what is the gospel? A dozen years ago, the late Robert Gulich made the question the topic of his inaugural address, noting that years of professional work has returned him again and again to this fundamental subject. Gulich told the story of an encounter with the founder, Charles Fuller, after a seminary forum with the inspiration of Scripture as its topic. Fuller commented 
that he longed for the day when the seminary would host a forum on the question, what is the gospel? That's from Theology, News and Notes at Fuller Theological Seminary in 2004. This is an amazing and instructive admission. The fact is that they really are not sure what the gospel is, and yet they say that they are saving people by preaching, quote, it, whatever that it may mean. The plain fact is that the gospel of the kingdom, including, of course, the covenant ratifying and atoning blood of Jesus and his resurrection, is the gospel. Until the, quote, heaven at death teaching which is Plato's and not Jesus, is dropped, how can progress be made? And how can we be sure that anyone is saved by believing the teaching of Plato and calling it the teaching of Jesus? Is God as sloppy as we are with our thinking? Is he so indulgent that he really does not care as long as we are sincere, although ignorant? of the nature of man, his destiny, the identity of God as the one God of Israel, Mark 12, verse 29, and Jesus as the Messiah Lord, not the Lord God. And for that phrase, the Messiah Lord, see Luke 2, verse 11. And of course, Jesus' own definition of the gospel. Shiloh Matthews, Doctor of Divinity, Professor of Theology at Chicago Seminary, saw how essential a part is played in the teaching of Jesus by the kingdom. I quote, It's a serious error to hold that the kingdom of God plays no important role in apostolic Christianity. Such a view both lacks historical perspective and is at variance with the entire thought of the literature of apostolic Christianity. The very name of the new movement, Christianity, would suggest the contrary opinion. So far from the eschatological future kingdom of God being a secondary element in the early church, it is, in fact, its great conditioning belief. The preaching of the first evangelist was not a call to ethical ideals or an argument as to certain truths. Rather, it was the proclamation of a message about the kingdom. As regards the person of the Messiah, there is, of course, no question that the early church believed that Jesus was the Christ who had gone to heaven, whence he would come to introduce the new age and the new kingdom. This was the very core of the entire Christian movement. To think of Jesus as deliberately using a term, that's to say kingdom of God, with a meaning different from what it would have been for others, is not only to raise a question as to his morals, 
but also as to his capacity as a teacher. End of quotation from The Messianic Hope in the New Testament, written by Shiloh Matthews in 1905. How very much unlike popular evangelism, the New Testament data on the gospel of the kingdom sounds. I make no apology for repetition. Winston Churchill said, if you have an important point to make, don't try to be subtle or clever. Use a pile driver. Hit the point once, then come back and hit it again, then hit it a third time. A tremendous whack. I've adopted in this translation what I admit is a somewhat shocking practice of placing a lowercase l on the word Lord when the reference is to Jesus. The point is to remind readers of the fundamental distinction between the Lord God, yod heh or Yahweh, or possibly Jehovah, and the Lord Messiah, as in Luke 2.11. This is based on the Bible's favorite umbrella text in Psalm 110, verse 1, where Yahweh, the one God, addresses an oracle to the predicted Messiah, who is David's son and also David's Lord. The Hebrew word, my Lord, there is Adoni, not Adonai, with a capital L. In 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6, Paul echoes the Unitarian creed of Jesus in Mark 12, verse 29. He defines God as the Father from whom all originates and then adds his definition of Jesus as the one, quote, Lord Messiah. Psalm 110, 1, and its very easy distinction between the one Lord Yahweh and the non-deity Lord Adoni, my Lord, all 195 times meaning not deity. This lies behind Paul's thinking, as it does behind all the thinking of Jesus. As we read in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 37. On no account should the two lords of Psalm 110 verse 1 be muddled, resulting in two who are Lord God, an obvious violation of monotheism. Adoni, my Lord, with lowercase l, is the deliberate and unambiguous non-deity title for Jesus the man, Messiah, as we read in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Sometimes the New Testament text does not make it clear whether the Lord God or the Lord, lowercase l, the Lord Messiah, is intended. This affects nothing of vital importance, since Jesus and God are working in harmony according to John 10, verse 30. Jesus being the supreme agent of God, his Father, who is also Jesus' own God, as we read in Hebrews 1, verse 9. 
The point of using lowercase for the Lord Jesus is to remind readers over and over again of the central truth provided by the oracle of Yahweh in Psalm 110 verse 1. The relationship between God and Jesus is firmly established by the contrast between Yahweh, the one God of the Bible, and the non-deity figure now appointed to sit at the right hand of Yahweh, pending his return in the future to the earth to rule in the future kingdom of God on earth. Jesus is the Adoni, my Lord, lowercase l, of Psalm 110 verse 1, and his relation to the Father is repeated continually in the New Testament, summarized by Paul's uncomplex creed in 1 Timothy 2 verses 4 to 5. God, and I quote, wants every person to come to the knowledge of the truth, namely, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Messiah Jesus himself, the man. This is the task of a church desiring to be faithful to Jesus and to Scripture. For those readers of this translation who might be skeptical that the long-held, cherished traditions of Christianity could be radically mistaken, the words of the leading Christologist, Dr. James Dunn, are suggestive. I quote, There is, of course, always the possibility that popular pagan superstition became popular Christian superstition by a gradual assimilation and spread of belief at the level of popular piety. We must beware of assuming that all developments in Christian thought stem from the Pauls and Johns of Christianity. That's from James Dunn writing in his Christology in the Making in 1989. It may well be that Orthodoxy's massive dependence on John and Paul ought to raise our suspicions that the Bible is being used selectively and thus misleadingly to bolster the status quo. The reader is invited to assess this issue with a Berean attitude as in Acts 17 verse 11. Luke in that verse commends a searching, noble-minded approach suitable to all those invited to rule the world with Jesus in the coming kingdom on earth. Finally, I suggest that the popular definition of God as three in one tends to keep millions of Jews and Muslims at arm's length from the real historical now risen Jesus of Nazareth, for whom unitary monotheism was the basis of true faith, as we read in Mark 12, verse 29, and John 17, verse 3. 
Is it not time for intelligent worshippers of God in church to make clear to themselves the meaning of their public confession of belief in Jesus as begotten, not made? Lest that confession run the risk of being mere tradition learned by rote and words without meaning. I leave the reader to consider again and to take to heart the astonishing admission of missiologist Mortimer Arias quoted previously. Why not, he said, why not try Jesus' own definition of his mission and ours? For Jesus' evangelization was no more and no less than announcing the kingdom of God. I suggest that the gospel of the kingdom be given its actual biblical meaning as the kingdom of David to be restored, that is, by the greater son of David, Jesus Messiah. For that information, see 1 Chronicles 18, verse 14, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 5, 2 Chronicles 13, verse 8, and 2 Chronicles 21, verse 7. Isaiah 1, verse 26, and Mark 11, verses 7 to 10. The unique value of this translation lies in its introduction and accompanying notes designed to correct widespread misunderstandings caused by post-biblical, unexamined tradition. Some modern translations use other translations as a base text. I have translated some of the New Testament books directly from the Greek text for other books I've used and heavily modified public domain Bible translations, including the Wikipedia Bible, otherwise known as the Free Bible Version.